I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and great multitudes gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and devoured them, and others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. The others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. I'll pray. Father, we again just gather together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge God in our hearts that we need you, and we have been made for you, and that we can not know you, God, unless you reveal yourself to us. And we pray that you would do so, that we would hear your voice, and that our hearts and minds would be instructed by your Spirit, and that we would yield in faith and obedience to all that you want to say to us and do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, well, May 5th on Thursday was an um, eventful day. I had a birthday, and as a friend of mine said to me, as he wrote and said, happy birthday, he said, Congratulations on the 26th anniversary of your 39th year. <laughs> Paul Doherty, part of our church, had a birthday. Alex Vasquez had a birthday. Cindy Bramer had a birthday. Four folks from our little church. I also have a son and a grandson who had birthdays on May 5th, a nephew that had a birthday, and no many others. Something about May 5th. Plus, it's wonderful that all of Mexico celebrates our birthdays. <laughs> but the most significant thing is that um, that Margo, our sister, went home to be with Jesus on Thursday. Um, we don't know yet exactly um, when the service will be, but probably Friday, so you all can have that on your calendars, and probably in the morning Friday, will only be a graveside service here at the Bernie um, Cemetery. So you all can be thinking that on that. We'll get out word tomorrow when we know for sure the time and let you know. Also, I, as has already been said twice this morning, happy Mother's Day to each of you that are moms. Um, Impossible to overstate the significance of your lives to your families. And um, it'd be very difficult to overstate um, the grief that Tatiana and Zach are going through in losing their baby um, today. Of all the days to lose a baby on Mother's Day. So please be in prayer for them. They certainly need our prayers. This is not the first um, baby they've lost. Um, this is the second now. And so, great grief there. The good news on this Mother Day is what we heard this week, that it looks as though Roe versus Wade will be overturned. And I think it's been 49 years since that heinous decision was made by our Supreme Court. And... Um, we need to continue to pray that those justices would stay true to their decision and not be pressured um, to change that. And it would be just tremendous if we can look back and say that it was um, really at Mother's Day that we got the news that that awful decision would be overruled. Doesn't mean that abortion is going to go away in this country. We know that. Um, 
but at least that we would stop the lie that there, there's a constitutional right um, to abortion. You would think with something as precious as life and the unborn life, that, that this is something that all humanity could agree on, that there is nothing more precious than an unborn child. Amazingly, um, there are many people in this world that would rather, on this day, spray paint graffiti across churches and break into churches in protest that abortion could perhaps be overturned than to celebrate life, especially on Mother's Day. People are truly hard-hearted, truly under the control of evil, that they could scream profanities and all but burn their hair because the government won't uphold the supposed right to kill your innocent unborn child. I don't know of a, in our lifetimes, a more visible portrayal of hard-heartedness than where people stand when they support abortion. Unreasonable, it's just demonic. Particularly if you've done any research at all, and I would recommend that you do, in the actual abortion process. It's enough just knowing that an innocent child is killed. There is never a justification for that. Not rape, not incest. There is no justification for killing an innocent child. But if you know the procedure involved, it was Norman Geiser when I was in seminary used to say, and I used to picket an abortion clinic with him on a weekly basis. But he said abortion would be completely outlawed in this country in 30 days if we simply put on television a live abortion every day, once a day for 30 days. If people could see the procedure, it's hard to imagine that there'd be anybody left in this country that would still be saying this is a good thing. It is pure evil. How does that lead into this passage? It does, actually. You remember in chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus has had the audacity to simply stand before the crowds and say, come to me all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in response to that, in chapter 12, the Pharisees are saying, he cast out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes, we've gone as far as we can go. He will never again, in Matthew, offer the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And now, when he speaks to the multitudes, he will begin speaking in parables. That's why chapter 13. These parables are not a way to illustrate truth. They're a way to, obs to obscure the truth because they won't hear it. And we're going to read the verses where Jesus says exactly why he's speaking in parables. But these people's hearts have become so hard that Jesus is going to liken their hearts to pavement and throwing seed on pavement doesn't do any good. Hard-hearted people. In this chapter, there are eight um, parables. Everybody counts at least seven, but it does seem that there are eight. The first four parables are directed to the multitudes. The last four parables are directed specifically to the disciples. But in none of the eight does he explain them to the multitudes. For all eight, the explanation is reserved for the disciples. Clearly, these parables are not meant to be teaching tools for the multitudes. They were a judicial act, an act of judgment, 
We'll just read what Jesus says here. Picking it up in, in verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again, and I should heal them. That's why he speaks in parables. It is a judicial act, an act of judgment. Also in verse 35, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. It was prophesied that Jesus would do this, and he does it in response to the hardness of their people's hearts. So the teaching of parables was an act of judgment. The teaching in parables was a fulfillment of Scripture. And the teaching in parables, the third thing that Jesus says, was to reveal truths about the kingdom that had never been revealed before. So he says in verse 10, <coughs> the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you, the disciples, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So one of the other reasons, third reason that Jesus speaks in parables is because he wants the disciples to learn certain things about the kingdom that were never revealed in the Old Testament. A mystery is something not previously revealed. Now, there is a lot in the Old Testament about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. I believe they're one and the same. There's a lot in the Old Testament about both the millennial reign of Christ where he will rule for 1,000 years on earth and the eternal state where, <coughs> where God's kingdom will be permanent over all this earth. There is a lot in the New Testament about the millennial state and the eternal state. They are not the same thing. But it's not until we get here in chapter 13 that Jesus begins to talk about a different aspect of his kingdom, sometimes called the intermediate kingdom, sometimes just called Christendom. The things that we're going to see, and we're not going to look at all eight <coughs> parables this morning, but just the first but the things that we're going to see here that he's describing in the parable are not true of the millennium. They are not true of the eternal state. Nonetheless, Jesus says these are truths about the kingdom of heaven. So they're not true of the millennium. They're not true of the eternal state. So what's left is the time between Matthew 13, Jesus' life on earth, and when he returns again. So sometimes it's been described as the inter-advent stage, the time between his first coming and his second coming, that these, are, these parables are describing that period of time. We need to be careful on that because if you make this about the millennium, you're not going to understand the millennium. And it certainly can't be true of the eternal state because there are unbelievers that are being spoken of all through this and there are no unbelievers in the eternal state. The background, as I've said, is the Pharisees have recently credited Satan for the miracles and for the casting out of demons. Jesus is no longer offering the kingdom to Israel and he is now revealing previously unrevealed truths about the inter-advent age or the age before the millennial kingdom. With these eight parables, you'll have one parable and then an explanation. Three more parables and then another explanation. Three more parables, this time only to the disciples, and an explanation, and then the last parable um, <clears throat> at the end of the chapter. The first four pertain to the multitudes. The second four pertain to the disciples but the explanation is only to the disciples. So now the parable here, the first one that Jesus mentions. You can pick up almost any commentary off the shelf, and they will call this the parable of the soils. That is a mistake. That is not what Jesus calls it. So we read the parable at the opening here. Now I want you to go over to verse 18. Here then, the parable of the sower. Jesus does not call it the parable of the soils. 
we ought to take our, our clue from Jesus here. The emphasis is not on the soils. He has a lot to say about the soils. It's very important. It is instructive. There's much application there. But Christ does not want us to have that be the sole point. The point for Jesus is the sower. The sower, not the soil. So what is it about the sower? What, why, what is he trying to focus on and to bring to our attention? Well, you remember, what does the sower do? He gets his seed, good seed, Jesus describes it, precious seed, and he throws it everywhere. He throws it on the pavement. He throws it on rocky soil. He throws it on soil that's full of thorns. And he throws it on good soil. When was the last time you saw a farmer do that with his seed? No farmer does that. It might be good seed, but that's not a good farmer. That's a dumb farmer. We have a lot of farmers that come here every year to his hill, Canadians typically. I think that's all they do up there is they farm because we get a lot of farmers. And whenever I talk about this parable, I go, those of you whose parents are farmers, they pay a lot of money for seed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Does your dad just turn on the, the seed spreader and drive down the highway? Never. Never. Today's farmer, I mean, they have, they have GPS, they have satellite imagery, they know the soil, they know the moisture content, they know everything. They, it is a science the way farming works today. And you can be sure of this, they only put the seed where it's going to bring a harvest. So what is the deal with God? He is a bad farmer. The Canadians should instruct God on how to farm. <laughs> he is not a bad farmer. He is not careless with his seed. He is generous with his seed. He is a farmer to put the application where I believe it should be, he is a farmer who wants all to hear, who wants all to be saved. And he is willing to even cast seed upon people that he knows will not respond in the hope that they will respond. You ever seen a blade of grass coming up through the pavement? It does happen. Ever see a tree growing up off a rock shelf? It does happen. Second Chronicles 16.9, one of my favorite verses says, The eyes of the Lord search the earth, looking for the heart inclined to him, that he might strongly support that person. God is throwing the seed. The seed, here's an amazing thing I want us to think about. The seed is the word of God. Jesus tells us that. Look at verse 18. When the parable, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed has been, has been sown beside the road. It is the word of the kingdom. I think we could say it is the word of God. Jesus spoke the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. And not all respond to him. What do we know about the word of God? There are so many things. If you just go look at Psalm 19 or 119, both, but all through the New Testament, these are just some of the statements that we know about the word of God. From Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrows, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is a piercing word. It is a sharp two-edged sword but it bounces off the pavement of the hard heart. Isn't that interesting? From Romans 16, 116, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And all of us that have placed our faith in Christ, we know that is true. It is the very power of God for salvation. 
We know we didn't save ourselves. It was the Word of God that took root in our lives and brought us to life. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And then in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, For this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. It is a powerful, powerful word. And yet, it is not able to penetrate the hard heart. Isn't that amazing? I don't believe it's our final, up to us to make the final decision on who will hear and who won't hear, who the word will penetrate and who it won't penetrate. And yet, how do you know the heart condition of any person? By how they respond to the word of God. Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. Remember, he's already said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Lest they turn on you and devour you. How do you know if people are swine? Well, you've got to throw some pearls. And you'll figure it out. Because they will hate what they hear. Jesus also said in Matthew... When you go into a town, give it your greeting. And if the greeting returns to you, then shake the dust off your feet and go to another town. Not everybody is going to respond. The seed is good. The seed is powerful. The seed is the power of God unto salvation. And the seed reveals the true condition of the human heart. And as powerful as the seed is, it will not penetrate the hard heart. I believe it's because God, in His power, will never overpower the human heart. He gives us the freedom to reject Jesus. We either receive freely or we reject freely. The problem is not the word. The problem is not the sower. The sower is casting his seed far and wide. He wants people to respond. Don't blame the sower when people don't come to faith. The problem is not the seed. You don't need another message it can't be improved upon. It is the power of God unto salvation. So if the problem is not the sower, he is scattering the seed across this world. And the problem is not the seed. Then there's only one thing left, and that is the soil. And that means we have the power not to change our lives, not to save ourselves, but to say yes to the seed. That's all God's looking for, is a receptivity that says, yes, yes, God, save me. And unless that yes is there, God will not break it down. I know that the verse in Revelation 3, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock is spoken to a church. But it is true of the heart of God for all people. He stands and knocks. In the words of Jesus in Matthew, to the one that knocks, the door shall be opened. To the one who seeks, he shall find. The one who asks shall receive. As many as received him, John 1.12, to them he gave the right to become children of God. The heart must receive the seed. And when the heart receives, the seed explodes in his life to bring forth life.
but we must say yes. The first soil is a hard soil. And it bounces, the seed bounces right off. It does not penetrate, does not create life, does not germinate. And the devil, the evil one, is being portrayed here as the birds of the air. He's just waiting for that to happen. And when he sees the seed fall and he sees a heart that doesn't respond, he just comes in and he swoops in and he snatches it away. So it's as though they can't even remember that they ever even heard the word because it's gone as quickly as it came. Ever so often we hear people that eventually do come to faith in Christ and they go, you know, I heard it and I heard it and I heard it, but it's as though I never heard it until that one time when I heard. Reminds me of the time when I witnessed to a fellow that I'd <clears throat> he had asked me to come to his apartment and share Christ with him. I've told you the story. And I did, felt like um, I was the biggest failure um, ever to share the faith. And I went home quite discouraged. My phone was ringing as I walked into my apartment, and it was the same man. And he says, I just want you to know that my brother is a Southern Baptist preacher, and he has been telling me these things my entire life. And it wasn't until today that I heard it, that it made sense. We don't know. Maybe a person would hear the gospel every day of his life and not get saved. Some people, the first time they hear it, they respond. I know a lady like that. She grew up down in Floresville, South Texas, Bible Belt. And never heard the gospel till she was in her 30s. I think she was about 40 years old. And the first time she heard it, she believed. Maybe, though, she did hear it. But she has no recollection of having ever heard it. Because that's the work of the enemy. When it bounces off that hard heart, the enemy is there to snatch it away and make you not even able to remember that it was ever sown. There's a second heart. Verse 20. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. The Luke account says he believes. I wish that Matthew had included that, but we have Luke to tell us he believes. So there's no reason to think that this person is not saved. He hears the word, and in the language of John, he receives. In the language of Luke, he believes. And what does it take to be saved? Believe, and you shall be saved. And this person receives the word. He believes what he hears. Immediately, he responds with joy. But there's no firm root in him. It is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, so the gospel will create a response of persecution. Shouldn't surprise us. And, the, and so, so he falls away. He immediately responds in joy, but as soon as the troubles come, and they often come very soon, he falls away. Well, he was never saved. Yes, he was. Well, then you're saying he lost his salvation. No, we're not. The seed germinated. There was life. Now, the evidence of that life didn't last for very long. But it is indisputable the seed germinated. He received the word. He believed the word. And yes, when persecution came, he fell away. Next guy, same story. And so, verse 22, And the one on whom the seed was sown among thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So this person, too, does not endure. This person, it's not persecution, 
that causes him to wilt away. With this person, he doesn't wilt, he just gets choked. Choked by the worries of the world. Choked by the deceitfulness of riches. And after time, you look at his life and you don't see the seed that's been, that has come to maturity. What you see are the thorns. His life is dominated by the worries of the world, dominated by the deceitfulness of riches. And Luke would add, by the pleasures of the world. They both fall away. One wilts away, the other is choked out. The seed germinated in both. There was life. I believe this is just simply a very clear passage that not all Christians persevere to the end. This is not denying eternal security. Once you are saved, you are always saved because the life that you receive is eternal life, and eternal life cannot be snuffed out. But the manifestation of that life, not the life itself, but the manifestation of that life can be snuffed out. Not the life itself. This is why I believe that Jesus said in John 15 that unless you as believers abide in me, you shall not bear fruit. It is possible to be a fruitless Christian. Your salvation is not in question. It's your abiding in Christ that is the issue. There is a doctrine called perseverance of the saints. It is the P in TULIP, if you know your Reformed theology. Most Christians believe that that doctrine of perseverance simply affirms that you will never lose your salvation. Amen. I absolutely believe you will never lose your salvation. But if you're a good five-point Calvinist, that is not what you mean by perseverance of the saints. What you mean by perseverance of the saints is that you will never fall away. I'm quoting from different authors now. John Piper and his staff write, quote, We must also own up to the fact that our final salvation is made contingent upon the subsequent obedience which comes from faith. Your final salvation is contingent upon obedience. R.T. Kendall has commented that nearly all of the Puritan divines went through great doubt and despair on their deathbeds as they realized their lives did not give perfect evidence that they were elect. I actually have a paper in my files that proves that. That these Puritan fathers, great men of the Puritan faith, of the Reformed faith, die crying and screaming in fear because of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Because they could not in good conscience say, I have lived a life that reflects Christ to the very end. And so they could not be sure of their own salvation because they could not say categorically that they had persevered well to the end. At one of the Legionnaire National Conferences, it's quoted that, again, from John Piper, he said, no Christian... No Christian can be sure he is a true believer. Hence, there is an ongoing need to be dedicated to the Lord and to deny ourselves so that we might make it. Calvinist, as another person says, cannot rely upon Christ's promise of eternal life in the gospel since the promise is made for the elect alone. His security lies in being one of the elect, not in what Christ has done, not in, in, in Christ's promise to save, but in being one of the elect. But how can he be certain that he is? Piper writes, we believe in eternal security, the eternal security of the elect. And there one confronts a serious problem. How can any Calvinist be certain that he is among that select company predestined for heaven? He can't. There is not a verse in the Bible telling anyone how to be certain that he is among the elect. 
What the Bible tells us is how we can be certain that we're saved. And it is not by perseverance. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not my faith that makes me certain. It's Jesus and His promise that makes me certain. If it depends whatsoever on me, I can never be sure. If it depends on perseverance, and I have not yet persevered to the end, then I cannot be sure of my own salvation no matter what anybody says. Another writer said, To affirm perseverance of the saints in the Calvinistic sense is to deny the believer assurance. That is, if perseverance to the end is essential to prove you are truly one of the elect. You cannot be sure of that. You cannot be sure that you are one of the elect until you make it to the end. That's the logic of it. So the Calvinist has to look at this passage and say, these two soils, among the rocky soil and among the thorns, are people who were never saved. That's how they have to interpret this. Because they believe that once you are saved, you never lose your salvation. Amen. But these people are falling away, and they believe you can never fall away. Therefore, the only way you can handle this passage is to say they aren't saved. And yet the Word says they received the Word, and the Word germinated within their hearts. If perseverance is automatic for the elect, why are there so many scriptures exhorting us to persevere? Makes no sense. Why does Colossians 2.6 say, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him? Why is that verse needed? You will walk in Him if it has all been predestined. Why are we told in Romans 12 to present our bodies a living sacrifice to Him? What difference does it make if we are going to persevere to the end? Why does Paul say in Romans 13, do this knowing that the hour has already come for you to awaken from the sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. What's the point of saying that? If these weren't real dangers. Why does Paul say in Romans 6 to stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness? Why does he say no longer be in bondage to sin? Do not let sin continue to master you. If it wasn't possible to be as a Christian mastered by sin. Why does Peter write and say, now for this very reason, having been, he talks about saved by God, why then does he say, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness. Why are we exhorted to persevere if perseverance is automatic to happen? Why all the warning passages of Hebrews that trouble us so much if we didn't need to be warned? Why does Jesus write to the church in Ephesus and say, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have first lost your first love, left your first love. Batner, one of the premier Calvinist says, the proof that you are one of the elect is that you love God. The Ephesians left their love for Christ. Jesus doesn't say they aren't saved. 
he commends them that they are still persevering. A perseverance without love, though. To the church at Thyatira, Jesus says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He's commending them for perseverance. Why? Because it's not always there in all people. So when he sees it, he says, I see it. That would seem to imply that it's not always there. How's your heart? I would trust that if you're a Bernie Bible Church, your heart's not pavement. We had a gentleman that was part of this church for many years. I don't know his heart. His wife told me he is not saved. I hope I don't have to do his funeral. I'm not sure what to say. He never made any claim to be saved. But Sunday after Sunday, he would come to this church for years and hear God's word. On the one hand, he was not coming out and saying, I believe. But on the other hand, I wasn't seeing it just bounce off his heart. He kept coming, kept hearing. I don't know. I don't know. I know that there are people in this world, many, many people, who will hear and not believe. And God is not the fault. The seed is not the fault. It is the heart. There are other people who will believe. I believe genuinely saved. But when persecution comes, they fall away. Is it hard to imagine that we could see that? Is it really difficult any longer to imagine that here in this country that we could see many people who we've known to be saved, every reason to believe they're saved. They have confessed that their hope is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. They're not trusting in works. They're not trusting in themselves. They're trusting in Christ alone. And yet, when the persecution comes, away now. The persecution now may not be clearly on the name of Jesus Christ, but it is what Christ stands for. Speak up concerning the gender issues that are going on because you know the truth and Jesus is the truth. Speak up with what's going on with abortion today because you know the truth and Jesus is the truth. And even though you're not being persecuted per se for Jesus, you're being persecuted for the truth that you believe because your heart and mind have been enlightened to the truth because of your faith in Christ. Many Christians fall away because of the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. We all know them. The faith is just not there anymore. But some are good soil. Verse 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. No question God wants that to be true of all. It's not. In Jesus' ministry, very, very few people 
heard, believed, and brought forth fruit. Very few. Many more heard and believed and fell away. And many, the majority, heard and did not believe. The same is true today. So here are some final lessons to wrap up this. The spiritual condition of the heart is seen in how we respond to the word. Number two, the seed is good and powerful, but it is not overpowering. The heart must receive the word implanted in humility for the soul to be saved, James 1.21. The biggest reason people don't respond to the gospel today is not because of God. It's not because of the seed. It is because of pride. In humility, the word must be received and implanted. Only the first soil describes the unbeliever. The other three soils, there is belief, there is germination of the seed, there is life. Believers can fall away. They can fail to produce fruit. If we don't abide, there will not be fruit. Perseverance is not guaranteed. Affliction, persecution, temptation cause some believers to fall away. Worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of the world cause others to fall away. Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. Guard your heart. I remember when I was about 20, a man that I considered, um, uh, I didn't use the word back in those days, mentor, but he was basically a, a spiritual mentor in my life. I remember him saying um, that he wanted to get home before dark. And it's a metaphor for saying, I don't want to crash and burn before my days are over. At 65, I am praying that a lot. I am so aware of how close the ditch is. The last thing I ever want is to shame Christ, his body, this church, my family by falling into the ditch. And I know it is possible. It makes me fear God and fear myself and say, God, save me. There's not a day that goes by that I don't pray, God, save me from me. I know too many people who have fallen in the ditch. How can anybody say it's not possible? for a Christian to get shipwrecked when Scripture talks about shipwrecked Christians. It's not just the worries of the world and persecution and deceitfulness of riches. When it comes to guarding your heart, Scripture also mentions when Proverbs 4 speaks of that. What is the context of Proverbs 4? Sexual sin. huge. If you don't want to end up in the ditch, you have got to guard your heart from sexual sin today. Scripture also speaks about resentfulness, bitterness, and unforgiveness as being able to capture the heart and close the heart down where you're no longer open to God, you're not open to anybody else. Your mind has just shriveled and been controlled and poisoned by bitterness and unforgiveness. You may still say Jesus is Lord, but the fruit is gone. There is no evidence left because you've been choked down by the poison of bitterness. How do we become good soil? I don't know anything more to say than just Jesus. Jesus. We repent. We confess our sin to him. And we turn to God and say, God, if my soil isn't good, if I'm not responding to your word with the eagerness that I once did, then do the work that only you can do to make my heart good. But we have to say yes to him. 
Jesus. It's the time of year when you look around in the spring in this part of the country. You don't see it as much as we did a few years ago. But the good farmer burns his fields, lights them on fire, because he wants to get rid of all the bad stuff. And he knows that when, that grow, when it grows again, it's going to produce the good grass, the good hay that he wants. But that burning kills off all the thistles and all the bad stuff. And I know. We don't always know what we're praying for, but when I say, Jesus, I want my heart to be as receptive to your word now as it was the day that I first responded, I may be asking for God to light a fire. Because sometimes it takes drastic measures to make the soil good. We present ourselves to him. Let me close us in prayer. God, I thank you for the tenderness that you have displayed to us of your heart in giving Jesus to us. You gave him to the world, even to the hard-hearted, because of the tenderness and generosity of your heart. I thank you, God, for the love and tenderness and grace that has been expressed to us in our moms. But again, a picture of your heart toward us in Christ. May we be God people who quickly and eagerly receive your word implanted in our hearts with humility and have it bring forth fruit, some 100, some 60, some 40, whatever your word said there, God, that there be an abundant harvest for your glory as we say yes, God, to you. Thank you for your patience with us, for your mercies toward us. Thank you, God, you know our sins and what causes us to, to let the seed be choked out. Cleanse us, God. Bring us back to that place of pure and simple devotion to Jesus, that nothing would hinder your word bringing forth fruit in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name.